Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined again today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Excellent, thank you, John. It's particularly excellent today because we're, uh, we're actually not in the office studio. We, uh, we, we've gone off-piste, as it were. We have. Where are we, Phil? Tell, us, tell, tell everyone where we are. We are in, we are in darkest Essex <laughs> and we are in the Blue Boar pub in the lovely Essex town of Malden. And, and right above your head, Phil, is, is uh, uh, some lovely taxidermy. <laughs> I don't know, so yes, yes. Uh, it's a bore, funnily enough. So uh, anyway, here we are. The reason we're here is because yesterday there was some chaos on the trains, what with the uh, extraordinarily hot weather. Um, so uh, yeah, getting, getting in and out of London for its new studio was rather pointless, seeing as we, uh, we have the technology to be where we are. Oh, we are, yeah. What are we going to talk about this week, Phil? Uh, I've been away for, uh, for a couple of weeks, and so I haven't really been paying enormous amounts of te- attention to the markets while I've been there, but it seems that all hell has broken loose and profit warnings abound, and we've had a few more this week. Yeah, yeah, we've had we've had some uh, quite big ones, and I think this this is a theme. This is obviously something I wrote about uh, in the magazine last week. And profit warnings are on the up, and they they look like, if anything, the trend is uh, trend is continuing, maybe even getting worse. Yes. Yeah, so, so you mentioned in, in your Alpha report that uh, that's going to be published today that uh, companies are finding it very difficult to grow their profits, uh, but they're still commanding quite quite chunky valuations in many cases. What, 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 why are they finding it difficult to grow their profits? Is it company specific or macro factors? I think it's a combination of the two. I, I think you know if you look at it in the con- context of big companies, just by the sheer sort of law of numbers. It is actually quite hard for something that once it's become big to get much bigger. You're just up against the law of the law of big numbers, and I think you know we you know, you know let's be let's be frank about this. Um, you know the economy has been on a pretty good run for the last ten years. We've had we haven't had strong growth, but we've had a lot of we've had it ticking along pretty consistently for the last nine ten years now. A lot of costs have been taken out, margins have expanded, and it's getting more more difficult to do. And I think if you just look around and what's going on in the world, um, you know the economies are, you know, are weakening. There's signs of economic softness, weakness, whatever you want to call it, all over the place. Which is why every time you pick up the financial section in a newspaper or magazine, you get this talk about central bankers cutting interest rates and they talk about that is because the economies are not as strong as it'd like to be and yeah. I think that's you now begin to see some of that now in, in company earnings well we, we saw some pretty horrible numbers from uh, from Germany again this week manufacturing figures yeah. doing very very badly there um, obviously one, one of the big industries in, in Germany is, is the automotive industry and we have a bit of a, an automotive industry here too um, a couple of manufacturers a lot of component manufacturers and, and a lot of dealers uh, and, and they're having a tough time with it and that, that, let's start with uh, Aston Martin which is one of this week's profit I don't know where to start with this because it is a a flotation which what nearly a year ago now it's a, it's a shocker really in terms of the price that this was floated at the type of business model that this company is running I, I just don't get it I mean I was talking to somebody about this yesterday actually about the whole the whole sort of concept and the whole brand attraction of an Aston Martin and Aston Martin for me is it has it has attraction because of its exclusivity, because of its scarcity. 
And what you've got here is that you've got a company that's floated on the stock exchange selling a growth story, selling a volume story. And for me, that just seems counterintuitive because you, you potentially trash the brand by creating more of them. Now, the company or the, the bull case would have been, oh, no, there's more rich people in the world who want to buy Aston Martins. But we've come out this week and you know Aston Martin has slashed its volume targets um, its margin expectation has had a huge knife taken to it, and um, the shares are getting absolutely hammered. Well below the, the IPO price now. Oh, uh, about seven quid, I think. And they floated at, I think, 18. It's, yeah, extraordinary. You, you, you describe it in quite bold terms here in your alpha report this week, but I don't even know if I, I should read this out. One of the worst flotations that you've seen in over 20 years. I think so, yeah. And it's the next bit I like best. Yep. That includes the load of worthless junk that was floated during the tech boom. Yeah. And I have to, I was there. There was some real worthless oh, was, junk. I was there. there too. This is a bit better than that, surely. Um... It, 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 uh, Aston Martin has a very chequered history. You know, it's been bankrupt seven times. And it's highly debatable whether this, this company is making any money. This is the uh, capitalisation of R&D. Yeah. This is probably the most aggressive cost capitalisation that I've ever seen. You know, you're talking huge numbers here. Um where you they you spend money on research that's a ca- that's cash going out of the business it's not being expensed against revenue so it's being kept away from the income statement and it's being capitalized and spread over the over its useful life and um so this is a company that produces no free cash flow uh, but is supposedly profitable and I just look at the hard facts of this, and I'm sure that they would put up a robust de- defence of this policy. Um, but their capitalisation, from memory when looking at it, was a lot more aggressive than, say, Ferrari, which obviously it gets compared with. And um, I, I don't think this company's making any money. Mm. So it's still one to avoid, then? Yeah, I mean, this, this thing, in my opinion, should never have been floated. The, all, all the information, all the red flags on this... We're in the prospectus for anybody who wanted to go and read it. And you yourself spoke of many of those red flags before the IPO itself. Yeah, on yeah, this we, podcast, we, we spoke about them in the magazine. We did a piece in the magazine. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, the we, signs were there. Yeah, we, we did a piece in the magazine, actually, before, before the, the shares hit the market, making, making a lot of these points. Yeah, good stuff. Um, let's turn to another end, the other end of the, the, the automotive sector, which is, which is uh, dealerships. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've written in, in your Alpha report this week about Vertu. Now, now yeah. this has been a bit of a horrible sector over the last few weeks. Uh, we've had profit warnings from Pendragon, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and Lookers. And Lookers. Um, Vertu looks a bit better, you argue. But is it, is it the case of a good company and a bad sector yeah i think so um i think what what's interesting is you can see a trend developing now I mean that we know we know from the regular monthly data we get from the uh the uh, the industry body about new car registrations that the new car market's been going south but it seems now that the used car market is getting weak as well and this is what pendragon has said Lookers have come out and said that stock levels in, in used cars have gone up a lot. And Virtu this week has, has made the same, uh, the same comment about a lot of used stock hitting the market in, in April. And that has driven um, used, car, used car values down. 
And whilst Virtu's been doing quite well selling used cars, they're making less money than they were a year ago from them. But this has got a lot of implications for the market as well, because obviously if the value of the used car is going down, that means the trade-in value of people's cars is going down, which means the cost for them to change gets more expensive. So it's going to get more expensive for people trading in their old car to buy either a new car or a second-hand car. So this doesn't really bode well for the car dealerships. This all sounds very bad for Virtu. What's the good news? Where's the good news? <clears throat> I, I, I think this, this, is a, this is a market that will consolidate. Virtu, I think, is doing, doing a good job. I think it's one of the better operators in you know, what is not a particularly nice sector, let's be frank about this. I think it will, and it's, and it's come out and been quite open that it's going to get its checkbook out if it can buy distressed companies. And it's got a debt-free balance sheet, and um, it's probably going to be one of the survivors. I mean, it's all, this has always been the game. Here and it's done all right out of it. I mean, you know, we're not talking about a great business here, but it's not priced as a great business. Mm. You know, it's priced as, you know, a struggling distressed business and so but but there are going to be other car retailers particularly smaller ones in a very fragmented market who are more distressed yeah so, so, so a bad market gives gives a uh, virtue essentially the opportunity to to grab share grab share i mean i think there are a lot of uncertainties actually what the car market is going to evolve into over the next decade decade or so are we still going to buy our cars from dealerships are we going to go and buy direct at the moment, it still looks like the dealership model is going to stay in place, um, but it's a very uncertain world out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we hear sort of, uh, you know, even changes in the sort of ownership models that, that we've had traditionally from owning your own car to kind of sharing a car with half a dozen people down the street. Yeah. And I always kind of thought this, this was a mad idea. Um, when we were in Poland on our holidays, we, uh, we, we stumbled across uh, a company called Lime, which makes these little scooters that are GPS-enabled, and you just basically borrow them for half an hour. And, you know, I kind of thought, that was ridiculous. I ended up using them a lot. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I've come around to the, the, uh, the shared ownership model, and this might spread to, to, kind of, to cars as well. I think it will. I think they will do, particularly in big, congested cities. Mm. Um, where you know driving is not fun. I think it's parking. Parking, <laughs> parking is a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah, it will. But um, you know, the big in, the big thing about that, this this type of company is right at the sort of opposite end of the you know the sort of stock market spectrum. There is there is there, you know you cannot say that the expectations of the future are bullish. So so not what you'd call quality then. Oh and, no, definitely not. And, no. and quality, even though it's a well-run company. You could argue. Um, you know, quality is something you've spoken about in your Alpha report this week, uh, and, and we alluded to it at the beginning of this podcast. Companies that are described as quality are now very expensive. And they have been for a while. I mean, so quality looks like it's becoming a crowded trade. The definition of quality looks like it's being stretched as far as it possibly can. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, you talk about Croda as an example of this. Which is a company you like in your yeah. in your fantasy sit, but it seems it's it's a, it's a cyclical, it's a chemicals company. Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll dispute whether it's really cyclical because it's selling into sort of consumer consumer markets, uh, things like skincare and that, and that kind of thing. There's an element of cyclicality in it in terms of you know it's got some automotive exposure, but it's got a lot of sort of agricultural exposure. So I, I'm not sure whether it is deeply cyclical, but I think. This quality thing, there's a lot of a lot of people have jumped on the quality bandwagon, and think that you know 
you can buy quality shares or things that seem you know highly profitable, high margin, cash cash generative, high return on capital employed businesses, and you can buy them. And you can almost just forget about what price you pay for them. Quality at any price. Yeah. You know, my view is that it doesn't matter. The the quality is your peace of mind, right? The quality is your safety. That's that's what makes you sleep well at night. But if you can't grow, if you've got a quality business that that, that doesn't grow, it's just a a stagnant business. And it shouldn't, shouldn't command a high multiple of earnings or cash flow. And, um, you know, you're much actually better to be invested in a low margin business that's growing gangbusters like Amazon than you are to be in a high margin business like Crowder that isn't growing at all. Yeah, I mean, and you've, uh, you've also mentioned in your report this week Sage and Relex, both of which have had some pretty, uh, pretty horrible updates this week, both of which are in the portfolio as well, which yeah. is, is, shows the difficulties we're facing here. I think, you know, they're all UK listed as well. I mean... Sage is trying to turn its business, it's trying to change its business model. And it's doing all right on the bit it wants to change, but on, on some of the other bits, it's, it's really struggling. And this is, this, this is a company, software companies can be great investments because the cost of selling a, you know, incremental software licenses is zero and the profitability is incredibly high. And so, therefore, the, the economics of the revenues of the cost of companies like this um, make for very profitable businesses. Um, but Sage, is, Sage has been sort of fighting itself and its markets for sort of the last year, 18 months now. And it's had a very rocky ride. Um, the shares have actually done quite well this year and, uh, after a sort of a pullback last year. And we've got a bit of a pullback now. Um, you just hope that it'll, that it'll get it right. But I think the problem is that, you know, this again, this is a share that's been priced very highly because of these characteristics. And if it falls short, it just gets a kicking. Let's, let's talk about another company that's, uh, that's uh, priced very highly based on its prospects, but uh, which has fallen short this week. Yeah. We talk about this company far too much. But, we do. <laughs> but we seeing, do. seeing this, we're in, in a pub. Yeah, Peter Tree. Quite a stark slowdown in the UK. Yeah, I mean, you know, revenue growth was about was five percent. Yeah, um, not what you expect from a company priced at, at the level the, these shares are. No, uh, but I, I don't think it's entirely unexpected. You know, you've had this thing going gangbusters for the last two three years, and you know, there's only so much tonic that people can throw down the gullets. You, you say that. I mean, you, and you talk in the piece about you know the gin. Boom must be close to peaking, but we, we had some figures from Diageo this week, and you know, gin is there, still their standout performer. I think they said twenty-two uh, percent increase in gin sales. We'll we'll see whether it's peaked, um, but I think that that uh, Fever Tree has arguably been running on one cylinder or two cylinders: the UK and gin. And for it to move on, it needs to sort of grow o- overseas and. For me, it wasn't it wasn't the slowdown in the UK. I think there's a weather element to that. I don't completely buy the weather element. I think that we do have rising competition. Um, I think we do have an element of market saturation of the product, um, which is which is 
essentially, Fevertree has become a victim of its own success. It, it is, you know, I'm not my 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 gripe with Fevertree is nothing to do with how the business is run. It's the price the price that the stock markets put on it. And Fevertree itself cannot have any anything to to do with that. It's, it can't influence that. Not really. I, I think the thing that was for me that the two things that came out of it that I thought were quite interesting was that the the American growth and the growth was 24% constant currency and which is a decent number but you are coming from an incredibly low revenue base and the growth rate was very similar to what it was a year ago but a year ago you didn't have these distribution agreements up and running and moving and they've had all these distribution agreements now and uh, you would have thought that could have led to an acceleration in the growth rate and for me for me, that's disappointing, and, and I think it sort of keeps the concern that I have that um, the product base that they have and the U.S. spirits market, I'm not so sure that those two are a match made in heaven in terms of being able to generate huge amounts of growth. Um, the other thing as well was the, the, the just looking at the balance sheet, um, the big reduction in sort of like the stock build and you know in the past past couple of years you've had big stock you've had big stock build you've had big receivables because of order build at the at the uh, at the period end and that's come down quite a lot and i don't know whether that's just a timing exercise or what it says about um about the second half prospects company you know um broadcast its uh, its analyst presentation on its website and went into great detail about what it was going to do and there's some good ideas they've got some you know they've got partnerships now with Diageo Bacardi you know they're doing all the right things um but I, I I'm not I'm not convinced that that this this share price has stopped going down yet. Yeah. I, I think the expectations are still far too high. It's a great company though. It's, it's certainly one that you might pick up if it was at the right price. Oh right? yeah. I mean, you you know, you look at the business model. Um, you know, it's successfully, you know, the outsourced production model. It's capital light. It concentrates on the marketing, the ingredients of its product. It's it's a brilliantly run business. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to. You know, people might think I bash it and. I, I don't. I know you're constantly warring on Twitter with with uh, fans of this shit. I'm not warring. I, I warring's a strong word. But it's but it, bantering. It, I, yeah, bantering. It's, and it's it's just about expectations because because successfully investing. I, I'm a firm believer that successful investing is playing the trade off between how the company is actually performing and the expectations that are based in in the share price, and you make money when the company is performing or going to perform better than the expectations that are priced into the shares. And the problem with this is that the expectations into priced into the shares, I think, are ahead of what this company can actually do. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about, uh, you mentioned stock and stock build in relation to Fever Tree. Stock and uh, stock position is something you also talk about in your uh, magazine column this week. Yeah. How to analyse balance sheets to get a, an idea of a company's financial health. Let's talk about stock because the the example used to illustrate that uh, concept, Ted Baker, is a fascinating story. Yeah, I've, so good, so good. We've written about it twice in the magazine. Yeah, I think I've written about it another. Th- I think I've done it a bit more as well. <laughs> no, I think in the same issue though, 
because uh, Algie's looked at this as well. I know you were talking beforehand. I'm trying to work out who pinched whose idea. Algie pinched my, <laughs> pinched my idea. So tell, tell us what's going on here, because Ted Baker is a company that's been through the wars. Um, this week, you know, its founder, Ray Kelvin, has decided that actually the price at which the shares are now trading is too low. So he's, he's looking to mount a buyout. But, but you, you, you're, not, you're not confident that this company's uh, financials are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you're a fashion retailer, wholesale, so you, know, you need stock. You, know, you need to have stock to fulfil the demands of your customer. But the amount of stock this company's been taking on as a percentage of its sales has just gone through the roof. Yes, thirty-seven percent. Yeah, it was you know of turnover. Yeah, a decade ago, this was less than twenty-five percent, and you start asking yourself why, and why is this getting getting more intensive? And certainly, the last couple of years, you look at look at the charts and you look into the accounts. Um, it's it's just taken off. The danger is when you get carrying too much stock, is that you can't sell it. And you can manipulate your profits as well by by stock because you are allowed to um, take the cost of overhead used to make that stock or bring it bring it to point of sale. That can come off your income statement right. on, onto your balance sheet. It's more of an issue for manufacturers than, than for retailers. With retailers, if you're just carrying lots of stock, the danger is is that to turn that stock into cash you have to slash the selling price of it and you trash your profits. And the amount of write-off, stock write-off, stocks that they just can't sell and have actually had to write off, has been rising at, um, at Ted Baker. And my fear is that the position, the stock position it has now, and this is something that the company have said they want to address, is that we could get, we could get more write-offs here. Yeah, I mean, Algie's actually published the chart uh, in his piece, which is the stock screen. It's popped out at the top of uh, his contrarian value screen. Mm. It's certainly contrarian. Uh, whether it's value or not, or a value trap, is, uh, is the question we're looking at. Yeah. He's, he, he's actually got a chart showing how, uh, you know, you've had a steady sort of downward re-raising of the, the share price. Uh, a steady sort of upgrade of earnings up until about two th- late 2018 and then they've fallen off a cliff so yeah. it looks like this 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 issue is caught up with it basically yeah and i think you know the danger the danger with i think with value is that and i had a discussion with this the other day with somebody on twitter earn it's you know it's, earnings are so important you know valuations are important but it's very difficult to make money out of a stock where, where profits are falling. Things can look cheap, but if the earnings are on, on a downward trend, they're probably going to stay cheap and get cheaper. Well, Ray Kelvin might help shareholders out here and uh, take, take the decision out of their hands. He might. What they do with, uh, with Ted Baker. It's kind, of, it's kind of symptomatic of what's happening across retail generally, though. It's, it's just becoming very, very tough. Yeah, but that, that just looks a very worrying position to me. You know, you've got to really slash that stock position really yeah you're going to run that start running that business properly you've got to take a lot of stock out of that and and whether you know the damage that can do onto your profit and loss and uh, and your balance sheet could be quite significant absolutely um let's talk quickly about another well, it's a slightly different type of retailer I and mean, it's not really just the retailer anymore yeah. you mentioned amazon at the beginning of this podcast 
that's that's a company that you've added to your, yeah. your fantasy sip, yeah, uh, which is kind right. of illustrative of the the idea that it's becoming harder to find good quality UK listed companies. We've got to set our sights a bit wider. Um, let's talk about that. Interestingly, just before we left to come and record this, I've got a, a, a broker update on Amazon from Shaw Capital. Yes. And I, I, this was interesting, a UK broker. It's like a UK mid-cap broker. Yeah. We've, we talk about the struggle to find really good businesses in the UK. You know, if, you know if people like us come to that conclusion. That I've no doubt that professional fund managers who are doing this job every day will have already come to that conclusion as well, which I think is why you are looking at companies now who want to invest globally rather than just in the UK. And I think that that is a very sensible thing to do. I would advise anybody to to, to consider that because just just sticking to the UK market, um, you know, is admittedly not not the best not the best uh, pond to fish in. But it's quite interesting actually. I mean, just sort of going off a little little bit of a tangent before we return to Amazon. But um, Mark Robinson, in his taking stock column this week, has spoken about uh, a new market that's been launched in China, the Shanghai Stock Exchange Star Market, which is kind of the, what they want to be their their version of the Nasdaq. But we've also had um, the launch of the London Shanghai Stock Connect recently. So, so you know, things are happening. That's, that are, the idea is to make it much easier to sort of trade globally. Yeah, and I think the, the information's out there for, for all investors, private investors as well as institutional investors. You know, company information is readily available on the internet. And there's no reason why you can't go out and buy American shares. Yeah. I've, I've, I've often wondered what the appetite amongst their readership would be for more coverage of, oh, of international companies. I mean, I mean, and if you, if you want to get in touch and tell us, that would be great. But I've had emails asking me to do more. Um, I think the thing that needs to to happen here is that the brokers need to bring down the cost of dealing in, in, in American shares. It I, can I, be quite expensive. I don't think it's the actual transaction cost that's the problem. I think it's the currency. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's the it's currency the, exchange rates yes. that you get, you get offered that, yeah. that, that kill the trades. And that puts a lot of people off, and I, I understand that. But, um, you know, I th- I think that you know, if you look at the American stock market again this year, the S&P 500, it is you know doing a lot better in ster- even in sterling terms than than the FTSE All Share. And you just look at the you know, the outstanding businesses that are listed on the American Stock Exchange, and I totally understand why people want to look at this and why brokers want to write about them. So, I mean, it's not it's not the only American share in your fantasy sip. You've got no, there's lots. Disney, Visa, PepsiCo. Uh... Mastercard, Donald's, Mastercard, uh, 3M, yeah. so Moody's, yeah, actually probably probably more than half of it. Getting actually. towards half now, yeah. Um, let's talk about Amazon very briefly because I mean it's not the retail business that you're particularly interested in. It's it's web services more than anything. Yeah, I think it's the, the web services again is you know it's doing very well. It's doing what it's doing what Amazon does brilliantly in that it it finds a market or a section of a market where it can sell a lot of volume and it just goes in there at a very low price and takes lots of business. Do you know what? It, it, I, I love Amazon, I have to say. I mean, I, I appreciate people's concern over what it does to the sort of UK high street, but I needed these mics for this podcast. Yeah. And I realised that at about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. And I was about to place that order, and I could place that order with Amazon, and they were with me by 6 o'clock yeah. that evening. 
So, yeah. so here we are recording a podcast. Thank you very much, Amazon. Fantastic customer <laughs> fulfilment. Indeed. And I, one of the reasons why I like it a lot as well. But I, I think, I, I, you know, it's not just the web services business. I, one, of the thing, one of my big sort of investing themes and business themes at the moment is the growth and potential of own label, private label products. And Amazon, you know, talking up a big push on their Amazon Basics range. And I've bought, I've bought um, quite a few bits of Amazon Basics, and they're really good. And what, what, what is it, sort of electronics, gadgets? Everything, or? you know, batteries, my rucksack, which my computer comes in when I come into the Investors Chronicle office every Thursday. It's an Amazon Basics off, um, rucksack. It costs less than £20. I've had it two, three years. My other one, which costs more, fell apart. This thing is still doing the job. And this is, this, this is a theme that I think is only going to get stronger. And you've seen it with the discount retailers, the Aldi and the Lidl. You're seeing it with supermarkets like Tesco, who are talking about bringing a whole store format with their finest brand. So it's not just cheap own label it's the it's the quality mm. it there is a it's no longer are these things the poor poor man's alternative and you get what you pay for and you buy something and it falls apart these are products now that are every bit as good in terms of durability and quality of branded goods that cost a hell of a lot more I guess this applies to clothing as, as much as anything. You know, Ted Baker is an example of, uh, you know, a, a good branded supplier, but yeah. making clothes are very, very expensive. Yeah. And, you know, essentially, these are made very cheaply with huge markup on them because they have a label on them. And, you know, I mentioned... Well, I you're, mentioned paying, you're paying for a bit of design there as well. Yeah, I mean, a the, bit of design, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> you are, you, you are, but... I mentioned it in my Alpha report last week about my, my trip to Primark. Oh, and, yeah. and, um, that is the famous Primark they shorts, Phil. Six pounds. We saw, we saw a big, big jump in the attraction to these consumers in the last recession. And it will probably take another downturn for the next step up. But I, you know, I am very nervous about the prospects of consumer branded companies. Yeah, and, and Amazon takes you well away from that theme. It's, 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 yeah, as you say, it's got its own basics ranges. It's the middleman for a lot of this other stuff. It's the back end infrastructure. It has the investment in yeah. logistics. Yeah. You've got uh, Amazon, you've got, you know, Primark have been doing this for a long time. But, um, you know, this week we saw B&M, B&M, B&M European Retail, B&M Stores put out a pretty decent decent trading up deck and they are they're different they are they are a brand discounter well they're a combination they're a brand discounter where a bit like sort of you've got home bargains there's yeah, one down the road here it's yeah the same sort of thing i actually prefer home bargains to b&m i in terms of the stores that i've been in i think home mm. bargains which is private company i just think the feel and the range in their stores is just a bit more bit more appealing maybe maybe but it's just a personal preference We've had Superdrug for quite some while. We've got an offshoot of Superdrug um, selling uh, health and beauty uh, called Savers, which you might have seen on some high streets. 
And these are following a very simple but powerful business strategy of reducing the range in the shops, concentrating their buying into selected brands, getting a good price from the manufacturer and coming back to the customer and offering cheaper prices in the supermarkets. And this is a very powerful business model and one that's I think has got a long way to run. But obviously with B&M, you've got the brand discount side of it and then you've also got the sort of private label side of it as well. They've got a big sourcing operation in the Far East, uh, bringing goods back and selling them over here. And it's working working quite well. I, I, I thought that B&M was losing its way a bit maybe 18 months ago, but it, this set of figures is a lot more reassuring. One for the fantasy portfolio? No. For the portfolio, I tend to look at yeah, global yeah, yeah. growth potential. This has got a business in Germany, which isn't doing that well. It's got a business in France. I tend to stay away from pure UK themes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Reasonably priced shares, though. Yeah, about, yeah, they've had a good run this year as well. Um, but I, I think they are selling into quite a favourable demographic market. I'm not sure what the right word is, but there's definitely... There's definitely legs in this type of business model. Indeed. Let's let's, um, let's wrap up with one other company that you've uh, you've talked about in your alpha report, which is uh, Drax. It seems only fitting, seeing as we are not too far from where a, a giant's new power nuclear power station is planned to be built. Um, yeah. You, you think Drax has got a really interesting role to play in the UK's energy, energy mix in the future? Um, it's been a bit of a funny sort of a curate's egg for, for a number of years. But you like what it's planning to do, potentially. Potentially. I think the problem with it is how, how on earth do you value it? Um, but, you know, just by way of background, Drax um, was the largest coal-fired power station in the UK. And I think it used to produce about 7% of, uh, of the UK's energy. And obviously coal, seen as a bad thing, and it's... Coal is being phased out, and coal will be phased out of Drax by 2025. For the last few years, it's been trying to build to burn uh, biomass or wood pellets and create electricity from wood pellets. The big plan now, that's always been a little bit controversial. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But the big plan is to make most of the capacity of the Drax site into gas, gas-fired electricity. Um, gas has got a very important role to uh, to play in the electricity market because whilst we're getting more of our electricity from wind power and from solar power, this is not enough to keep the lights on and to keep the factories running at peak times. Well, you can't you can't necessarily plan when you have that power available. Yeah, which you can with gas-fired power. Yeah, so you can turn a gas-fired power station on very quickly, and you can meet peak demand which you can't do easily with nuclear or renewables. So I think you, I mean, you were describing this to me earlier. Nuclear is kind of always on, so that's the kind of steady underlying... Yeah, generally you have to, it's called baseload electricity, where you have to, you know, everyday sort of normal demand. You can't ramp up a, a nuclear power station for, for safety reasons. So um, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, countries like France, obviously, have got huge nuclear, nuclear power, and they, they get by, but... In terms of the UK, we haven't got that type of, of, of fuel mix that allows the lights to, to stay on. So we need gas. 
problem is, is that you need to subsidise that gas, otherwise the stations won't get built. And this is called something called the capacity market, where companies get paid money to be on standby to generate. And that because otherwise their their power stations aren't economic. Problem with this is that the friends in the European Commission have said this is not right. This is a, this amounts to sta- a form of state aid, and therefore the capacity market has been paused. Well, that might change at some it point in the well, near future. It, we it, have we've so far got uh, got a long way into this podcast without mentioning that there's yeah. been a change of prime minister and essentially a change of government. Yeah, yeah. But this may this may this will have to change because you know we have to keep the lights on in this country, and so some some sort of resolution to this capacity market. And this affects, you know, other companies like SSE, Centrica, um, and I think I think this just makes Drax an interesting asset. Well, I mean, the shares don't look like they've, you know, kind of run run wild. I mean, they've well, they're less than half what they were four years ago. Yeah, I mean, they're doing okay. They've made some acquisitions. They've bought a hydro um, electric station from SSE, and they've bought some gas from SSE. But not 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 you know overly expensive shares. No, they're paying five uh, percent dividend yield decent, as well. Decent dividend, decent cash flow behind it. So yeah, so you this is like a sort of you know option. It's, it's a bit speculative, but one that I when looking through the results this week, I thought this is quite interesting. I mean, there's political regulatory issues here. But, but, but as I say, you know, with the with the recent change of, of government essentially the political environment looks like it would swing back in favor of the kind of initiatives that would would help drax out yeah, yeah. so uh one to watch then yeah i think so all right well uh i think i think we should call it a day and get and head to the bar uh <laughs> yeah so uh yeah my, my my pint is empty let me just talk you through what else we've got in the magazine we've already talked about the stock screen the sector focus on packaging which again is a sort of amazon type play that, that affects a number of uk companies um, we've got we've got a lot of updates from Simon Thompson alongside Phil's um, piece in the comments section. Uh, we have uh, a feature on broker notes uh, and and how to read them. There's been a lot of criticism of broker notes, and and actually there's some numbers that really really kind of underpin why that criticism is valid, and uh, and, and what we need to do as investors to, to really get the most out of broker research uh, and the cover feature which is about house builders. I've deliberately not talked about, about house builders with you, Phil. Good decision. Because <laughs> I know how much you love them. Um, you did watch the Liam Halligan Oh, I did, yeah. I thought, yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was a bit of a shocker, really, wasn't it? You wouldn't yeah, want to yeah. be a persimmon shareholder. It's a shame they only had half an hour. Beyond the sort of snagging issues around the sort of build quality that, that, that the programme largely focused on, there were some kind of serious sort of structural industry issues here. Uh, and they go deep into to the financial uh, services industry as well. Again, something to watch as we have a change of government and, and what they do about this. But House Building's boom and bust, why the new build industry could snag investors' profits, part two of our, uh, our property series. And we've got the final part in a month's time, which will be about uh, the rental sector, which is, which is undergoing a bit of a transformation. Anyway, that's, uh, that's it for this week. Thanks again, Phil. Uh, thank you to the Blue Boar uh, in Malden for hosting us. And uh, thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine, All Good News Agents, £4.99, or get online and subscribe. See you next week.